Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. Um, and today's guest, we will actually, there's two of them, um, is, is Ian Picard and Richard Sheriff, who are the founders of Strategia Worldwide, um, a company that manages into connected risks to protect the value of clients' assets covering mining, energy, infrastructure, and cyber. Um, so I want to welcome both um, Ian and Richard so they can give us, um, tell us a little bit about obviously their careers because um, they were originally um, both come through the uh, military um, and they can give us a, some more um, detail around strategia and what mining companies should be considering and looking for around risk especially in these unprecedented times and moving into a new world order um, that seems to be emerging. So I'd like to welcome both Ian and Richard. How are you doing, guys? Very well, thanks, Rob. Very well, thanks, Rob. That's good to hear. Appreciate your time for um, taking the time to do this podcast. Um, So if you can briefly just give us an overview of yourselves. Um, So start with Ian, first of all. So just a little bit of background about yourself um, to your sort of present day. Um, in a, a bit of a snapshot, and then the same question to Richard. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, so my name's Ian Picard. Um, I um, spent the first 20 years of my working life in the Army, uh, left, left mid-career. But since then, last 15 years really, I've been in the commercial world, um, uh, insurance broking with Marsh, uh, uh, Aon, um, underwriters, and then lastly into, into consulting. Got into the mining world uh, a little over 10 years ago now. Uh, when well, enough, a, a former colleague from Marsh came to me and said, one of my clients in Guinea has got a problem. Uh, not the sort of thing we, we do. Can you, can you help them? Uh, we did. We, we fixed their problem. We got the insurance actually as well. Um, and then fast forward, linked up with Richard um, four years ago now uh, and set up Strategia. So um, uh, over to Richard. Um, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, Richard Sheriff is my name. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty new to the commercial world. Um, I was a soldier for 37 years, uh, so I went through the whole works um, and, 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 and stepped down in 2014 at a fairly senior level, having been NATO's deputy strategic commander. But I've started thinking about this whole business really about 10 years ago now. Um, when I thought I was coming out of the army, and it was about the time of uh, BP's disaster in, in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was recommend I was advised to look at the whole issue of risk in the extractive industries, and I did, and I was very struck by the firstly the relevance of the hard won experience that the military had learnt very often, as I say, the hard way in places like the Balkans, in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan. Um, about managing risk and the importance of uh, understanding the relationship between risks, building bridges with uh, a wide network of stakeholders, and linking risk and strategy. And I looked, to be honest, at the mining world, I looked at the oil and gas, and I, to be honest, I thought risk was being looked at in silos. So I thought there was an opening for 
um, to bring in some of that uh, experience in the military world, in the in the commercial world. And as Ian said, in fact, we got we we first met five years ago. We set up Strategia, launched Strategia as a as a partnership in February 2016. Uh, and so it has proved because our approach of linking risk and strategy, uh, of looking at risk in a comprehensive way, uh, of understanding the interdependencies of risk is 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 is, is very relevant as we've uh, as we've been able to demonstrate. Yeah, um, I wonder if you can just give us an overview of the company as well. So, what kind of uh, services that you actually provide to the mining? Well, not necessarily just the mining industry, but a few different industries that you're involved in. But I suppose a bit more focus on the mining industry. Yeah, no, thanks, Rob. We do four things, really. Um, we do risk assessment. And as Richard's explained, we take a comprehensive view. We, we, we don't look at risk in silos because very often it's the connected risks that cause the problems. It's very rarely one single thing that causes a company to, to, to fail, lose its license uh, or, or fail to attract, attract investment. The next thing we do is strategy design. Um, and that can be linked to risk assessment. We can do the risk assessment as we have done uh, for mining companies and then produce a, a, let's call it an integrated risk treatment plan. We would call it a campaign plan, but it's, it's, it's the risk treatment solutions, but they're integrated. So you're pulling the right levers in the right coordinated manner. We also do what we call wargaming, which is a way of stress testing plans. And that can be done in isolation. So you could go and look at a company's COVID recovery planning and, and, and provide independent stress testing, red team it, bring in people who will challenge it and say, well, you've thought about this, you've thought about that. Um, uh, 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 or it can be done as part of the strategy design process. You would always stress test your plan anyway. And we do crisis management. We can help companies uh, react to crises. We can help them prepare for them by writing their crisis management plans uh, and testing and rehearsing them. So that's sort of in a nutshell um, who we are, what we do. We're a, we're a risk advisory firm. Okay. Um I've got uh, obviously a number of questions I want to ask you guys. Um, and first of all, I'd like to start with uh, with you, Ian. Um, what's the biggest sort of risks uh, facing the mining uh, sort of mining companies and I suppose the mining industry as we sort of emerge from this current crisis that we're in at the moment? Um, probably the biggest personal view uh, is that I think we're entering a world recession, if not a depression. I think investors are going to be nervous. Uh, capital will be tight. Although uh, so I think fundraising probably is the number one issue. Um, the cost of capital. And I think companies need to think what they need to do to give assurance to investors that uh, the risks to a project are understood. And there is, as I've described, a, an integrated plan to manage them. Okay. Um, and Richard, do you sort of have any views on that? I, I completely back that. I mean, I think the the, the the strategic challenge is absolutely the economic the economic fallout of what's going on at the moment in terms of COVID nineteen, um, a, a recession to beat all others, if not a depression like the like of which we we've not seen even since before the nineteen thirties. And I think, the, so the cost of capital is going to be fundamental. But people, it's, it's going to be about generating stability in a world of extraordinary instability. I think that, so there, there the, you, you get this nexus of stability, of prosperity, and of security. 
And in many of the countries that mining companies are operating in, and we may get onto the Sahel later, countries that were relatively stable, take Burkina Faso, are going to be in the eye of the storm, not necessarily from the disease, but from the economic fallout, the impact of climate change, uh, all of which is going to firstly create an existential crisis for people living on less than $5 a day, but also potentially uh, as a result of climate change, massive, I mean, famine, NGOs are talking about famine and famine of biblical proportions. And this to me highlights not just the importance of, 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 of the catchphrase ESG, it, it, it getting the, the environmental, social and governance piece right, because that is going to be fundamental to ensuring that we work, you know, companies work with the grain of the people they're operating amongst. But it's going to be broader than ESG. It's going to be ESG plus. It's going to be ESG plus absolutely plus security. So companies, again, have to really think through how they operate in, in, in what's going to become a very difficult world. Uh, and it's not a world of that, that, that's, you know, many mining companies, of course, are very used to operating in very tough and difficult parts of the world. Uh, but I think they're going to find in the next 10 years or so uh, that a new paradigm emerges, which is going to place extraordinary stresses and strains on them. And they're going to need to think through and learn from best practice in, in other areas. And I think that's where, to be honest, that's where you know, the military have also been operating in some pretty challenging environments. And we've all seen this in, in, in different circumstances, um, perhaps not in quite the same way, because no, no crisis is ever the same. Uh, but many of the ways of dealing with challenges like this, I think uh, uh, will, uh, the military have learned the hard way, but will be relevant uh, yeah. to the future of mining. Yeah. Um, obviously, you, you man, uh, mentioned uh, Burkina Faso. Um, and obviously, as a recruiter, I do speak to a lot of candidates. And what, what I'm finding a little bit strange at the moment is if we look at Africa, um, I know Burkina Faso seems to have opened their borders for and to receive expatriate staff. Yet all the surrounding, uh, from my understanding, all the surrounding countries have locked, closed their borders. Do you know why they why they sort of had more more of a relaxed, uh, I suppose, view about about this? Obviously, I know people uh, are flying there and self isolating, but it seems all all the countries around that area or around Africa um, seem to have closed all their borders apart from Burkina Faso. Well, I think, Rob, the, the, clearly it's up to every, com every government to make its own choice about, about whether borders stay closed or open. Uh, I think as a general point, though, thus far, and I don't want to count any chickens, thus far it seems that the virus has not had the sort of devastating impact on health as it's had in the West, you know, prosperous, rich countries with, you know, with people who are, who are prone to this sort of virus because of the lifestyle they lead. Africa doesn't seem thus far to have been subjected to that, but it is going to be, you know, the impact is on the economic side. So, the, I mean, it, it, it was noticeable how quickly Burkina Faso uh, and other countries in the region closed their borders when the virus started. And of course, I mean, we're working in Mali, with a company in Mali at the moment, and that is, um, that is still off limits. But I, I can only assume that a the impact of the virus on on Burkina Faso, and we've got we've actually got a, a, somebody on the ground who lives in uh, in Ouagadougou, is not so, as severe as anticipated, which has allowed the government therefore to uh, to lift the borders. And I would expect other African countries probably to be following suit in in you know reasonably reasonably quickly.
Yeah, okay. we also well, we also work in Uganda, and and there were dire predictions of the medical impact there. They haven't seemed to happen, but the economic impact is going to be dreadful. There is no question, which actually is good news for the mining industry because that countries like that are going to need foreign direct investment even more on the jobs. So that's a, you know, I would say that's a bit of blue sky. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose, would you think that some of the governments may relax some of their regulations uh, around foreign investment because they, they need mining companies? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I can't give you the answer to that. Um, worth looking into. Uh, I think it's a, it's entirely possible. I, I, one thing I would say, however, is going back to this whole business of, of ESG. I mean, there is a view that it's, it's not so important now. I think it's even more important now. Uh, companies that act responsibly will be valued even more by investors. And I think, aside from government regulation, good ESG performance is going to help long-term success. It's going to expose companies to a larger pool of capital and a more diversified investor base. So I would encourage companies to sort of keep sight of the big picture there. And if you can provide independent assurance that you have got the best environmental, social, and good risk governance to your investors, you will be ahead of the game. Yeah. And uh, another question to uh, Richard. Um, what do you think mining companies should be thinking about now, sort of uh, when, they're, when they're potentially going to emerge from, from this uh, global uh, pandemic uh what 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 kind of factors should they be should they be looking at and maybe putting in place they've got to think they've got to begin they've, they've got to do a number of things <clears throat> i mean i think the first thing is that em emergence from any crisis like this is going to require it's going to require leadership it's going to require vision it's going to require the ability to think ahead and take people with you um and inspire people to, to do things that they need that need to be done and that that so as in any good organization it comes back to it comes down to leadership um, and leadership isn't something that you can just expect uh, somebody's plucked out of a job one job and put into another job you can't expect them to show leadership unless they've been trained selected educated uh, to show leadership and that that goes back to the business of investing in people and investing in leaders I think the next thing is about people. I think it's about selecting and keeping the very best you can, but it's also about empowering them. It's about ensuring that they understand the vision, the direction of travel, uh, but they feel empowered and are empowered to use their initiative to implement the vision as, as, as directed or as, gu as guided, and that they've got the resources, uh, that the resources are in place. But it also, of course, needs trust. And trust takes time to build, which comes back to the business of leadership. I think the next thing is about thinking strategically and planning strategically. It's about identifying the desired set of circumstances, desire, work out where you need to be in five years, in 10 years, even in two years. I mean, at the moment, it's about, it will be about moving from a current set of undesired set of circumstances with lockdown, the impact of the virus, and moving to a situation where you can mine responsibly and, and, and generate prosperity, not only for yourselves and your shareholders, uh, but also, and really importantly, for the communities, the countries you're operating in. And that means laying out a strategic pathway, thinking strategically, and then really planning. And that means, put, again, thinking about the risks you face, joining up the dots, and laying out that pathway. 
but it also means testing your plans. And I think the one thing that comes out of this crisis, if nothing else does, is the importance of resilience. It's the importance of not just cutting margins so much that you don't have the spare capacity. Uh, we've learned, for example, leaders have learned about deputies. I mean, just look at what happened to Boris Johnson. No empowered deputy, and the government, you know, arguably was pretty rudderless. Uh, I'm not going to go any further down that line because, you know, that's going to get political. But you cannot, you cannot, you've got to assume that leaders won't make it to the end of the, uh, to the end of the, the end of the operation. So you've got to build in, uh, build in resilience there. But you can also build resilience into your planning. Ian mentioned one of the things we do, wargaming. Now, that might sound a bit extreme to some in terms of the military language, but no military commander would launch an operation assuming he or she has the time without subjecting the plan to the rigor of a war game. And that's a formal process where you set up a red team and they think the unthinkable. They think through what they could do to unstitch your plan like an adversary or an enemy does or like events do. Uh, and that's the way to build resilience into your plans. And then when you've got your plans, you test them, you test them, you test them. Um, and then you can begin to build robust plans. But again, it's not just the plan that matters. The, pl the process of planning generates agility. And it was Eisenhower who said, you know, it's not the plan that matters, it's the planning. Because that planning process generates a sort of, in through an intuitive process, allows you to think agile so that when the inevitable happens to, to, to knock you off your stride, uh, you're able to find ways around it. Um, so I think it's a sort of combination of those things, but I think the underlying fact is that people are going to need to invest in their people, invest in their leaders, uh, and invest in belt and braces approach to see them through what's going to be a very difficult time. And the exactly. days of, of cutting it fine with really seriously narrow margins, uh, I, I think you know, we've seen where people, those people who've, who've had very narrow margins are probably not going to get through this. Those with a bit of spare capacity uh, in the tank will do so. Yeah. Um, and the same question to uh, Ian. Well, I, and I, I would add a lot to that. Other than what companies can do now, I would, I would recommend to sort of think in three ways. They've obviously got to deal with the current crisis. Think about the now. People are struggling with mines on care and maintenance, staff rotations, all of those issues. But they need to start thinking about the next. So this may go on for a long time. How are we going to run this mine? in a sort of semi-lockdown scenario. How are we going to maintain social distancing and what have you? And I think companies are probably doing all that. They also need to start thinking the beyond. So what's this industry going to look like when it comes out of all this? How has it changed it? I think ESG is, is, a, is an obvious area, but there are others as well. Digitization is another area. How do, we, how do we want to take this company forward? I mean, if you want to digitize your mind, Clearly, you're going to get around social distancing problems, so that might be an added, an added, an added incentive there. So, and you might want different teams thinking about these things. You've got your team running the current current problem. You might want to be setting up a planning team that's actually looking ahead, not distracted by the, the hurly burly of today, uh, and then bring it all together, as Richard says, into a, a proper strategy, looking five, ten years out. So, I suppose what you're saying is companies sort of need to invest more in their planning approach um, and looking at not just obviously the operation, but all, all eventualities that could happen um, because we don't know how we're going to come out of this in the end. So it's looking, it's planning beyond coming out of this uh, uh, pandemic, 
but looking at a number of different angles because we don't know how we don't know we've never been here before and we don't know when it's going when we're going to come out of it and how it's going to affect the whole industry so planning that's rob that is precisely what wargaming will, will allow you to do it'll yeah. allow you know you set up a you set up that red team and they think they think the unthinkable they think yeah. through all the angles of what might happen and then every time you know you you, you go through the plan step by step uh, and then you know they'll spring the surprise on you, and the you know it's, uh, that in that in that process, the decision makers within a company are faced with um, a, a, a situation they hadn't thought about. They've got to make a decision about what they would do, and then that that decision is judged, and it's judged in a in a safe a safe environment where it doesn't matter if you fail, uh, because actually. It's in failing. If the test, if the plan fails the test, well, it's a good thing because then you can go back and put together a plan that doesn't fail the test. Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly what uh, companies need to be doing: testing, testing, testing their scenarios. Mm. Well, I think the point, the point is, Rob, is that nobody's nobody's got a crystal ball. Uh, anybody who tells them they can predict the future, you know, they're lying or they'd be very rich. But what you can do is model scenarios. And as Richard says, test them rigorously. Yeah. And that will help everybody get aligned around common objectives, that very process. Hmm. Okay. Talking about, obviously, risk, how well does the mining industry manage risk? And what don't they do so well? So I'd like to ask Ian, first of all. Um, that's a really good question, Rob. Um, I, I, I've had good fortune as well as having a military career, to work across a number of sectors. Um, I've worked in, in um, regulated financial services space, what I call a skilled person in banking. Um, so I know how other sectors do it. And, and some people in the industry won't like this, but I'll, my 10 pennyworth is, is that take banking, highly regulated, and risk management is probably over-engineered. But it's very good because it has to be. If a bank can't, or an insurance company can't demonstrate they understand and have got plans to manage their risks, the regulator takes their license away. That's it. It's, it's good night, Vienna. You may as well go home. That's one extreme. Uh, somewhere in the middle is the energy business, the oil and gas business. Very good risk culture, come back to that. And a lot of hard-won lessons. Some of us are old enough to remember Piper Alpha, and Richard mentioned Macondo. Some tough lessons learnt on the way. And they've got pretty good at it. Well, we go and see a, an oil and gas client, energy client. Broadly speaking, they've got a pretty good risk register and they've got a pretty good mechanism for controlling risk and assessing it. Uh, we often go in and we'll do a gap analysis and say, well, you, you, you haven't thought about this, that or the other, which is very helpful, or you want to prove this project's going to be viable to an investor, you need to do this, that or the other. But the, the, the fundamentals are there. Mining varies a lot. Uh, we work with a FTSE 250 mining company who uh, are pretty good, uh, I would say. They, they, they're not perfect by their own admission, but they've got a good handle on the things they need to worry about. We have worked with other mining companies, I'm afraid, some very big ones, where that was simply not the case. Um, there were two issues, I would say, come out when it goes wrong. Um, first is risk culture. You can have the best risk management framework, policies, procedures, controls in the world, but if the culture's not there, it doesn't work. You've got to have a culture whereby people feel free to challenge. 
if something's not working or they're worried about something, they need to feel confident they can put up a red flag and not get shot down. But somebody said, bad news to take the, least take the elevator as well as good news. And that isn't always the case. We've come across examples where internal audit reports that people didn't like were buried. Uh, people have said to us, I've been saying this for years, but no one listens to me, so I've given up. So that's number one. And that comes from the top. I mean, if the leader has an open office door, they're literally and metaphorically, that's a great start. They say, look, if there's something you're worried about, I want to hear it first. That sets the tone. And that will permeate through the organization. And if you've got that, you can then build the framework you need, lines of defense and, and controls and, uh, and all the rest of it. But it's patchy, I think, it, to be brutally frank. And when things go wrong in the industry and you analyze them, it's invariably because that's where it's gone wrong in that risk governance thing. Starts on the board, you know, the Ned's not asking the right questions in the first place, but it's also, it's, 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 it's through the management chain. People seeing things that they know are wrong, but feel fine to speak out. Bob, could I add to that? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I completely agree with Ian. Um, and there's no question that there are some really good companies out there with seriously dedicated CEOs who are fine leaders in their own right, who absolutely get the imperative of managing risk effectively if companies are going to be uh, successful in the 2020s. Um, but any industry which has permitted two tailings dams disasters, the like of which we've seen in Brazil within the last five years, frankly, is you cannot begin to say that risk is managed well in the mining industry. Those are, those are extraordinarily, you know, those are disgraceful examples of complacency and of a failure to manage risk. Um, and I, you know, you may well shoot me down on the basis that I've, you know, I haven't got any experience or very little experience of the mining industry, but I've got experience of a world and I've got experience of managing risk in, the, in, in, in combat. And so, you know, I can, I can look at this from an, as an outsider. The number of conversations I've had with really quite senior, one, you know, I can think of at least one very senior miner um, who's, who exemplified the complacency, the complacency I'm talking about by saying, I've had 40 years in the mining industry and I don't need any of this stuff about wargaming or anything like that because I've never had a problem. That to me demonstrates a degree of the sort of tip of the iceberg complacency, which ultimately leads to the sort of disasters that I'm talking about. So it's like a, it's the curate's egg is the answer to your question. It's good in parts, but where it's bad, it stinks. Yeah. Is there anything the mining industry can take away from other industries? If you had to name one, one risk that other industries take or manage well, which you could then put into the mining industries, what would be the main, the main risk uh, in terms of uh, planning? Um, I think rather than a specific risk, it's the way it's addressed. I mean, I think the closest parallel probably is the, is the energy, the oil and gas business, where the culture is different. Yep. And, and it's taken very seriously indeed. You, you don't get the sort of remark that Richard has, 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 just, has just made. So I think in terms of culture, you way to go about it, I would say look at the energy industry. I and mean, then in terms of the mechanics of it, 
I would look at the way a bank manages its risk. Now, you don't want to go to the extremes they go to, but it's a good framework. And we haven't had too many bank failures in the last 15 years, well, 10, 12 years now. Uh, and, that, and the reason is, is because those rules have been applied pretty strictly. Uh, and the people didn't, um, the people that don't, that don't, don't uh, fess up to it, don't, don't face up to it, don't stay in business very long. So, but, you know, other risk ESG, what have you, I think these are challenges for all industries. Uh, I wouldn't say one is any better or other than another. Yeah. And Mitch, well, there's one thing, can yeah. I add to that? Yeah. Um, and I think this highlights the imperative that in the world we're living in now and the complexity and instability of the world that inevitably is going to follow this, this event, you can't mark your own homework, particularly where investors are concerned. If you want to demonstrate that you've got risk properly managed, you've got to have somebody coming in from outside to, 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 to do it as a third party in order to assure others that yes, tick in box, they've got it sorted, they've got a plan, they've thought it through, they're thinking strategically, they're linking risk and strategy, and they're testing their plans. Companies can't do that on their own. And those who want to, want to be able to really demonstrate that they're, you know, that they're squeaky clean on this uh, will need to, need to seek outside assistance and outside assurance. Yeah. Um, I want to ask this uh, question to uh, Richard, because you've mentioned obviously resilience a few times. How can the um, industry be more resilient resilient from your perspective? Well, I think I've touched on a number of these things, but I, you know, I think it's, it's, it can learn an awful lot from other, I, look, at, look elsewhere for best practice. Mm. Um, I think it's a mind, I think I'd think with a mindset first, it's a mindset issue. Uh, I go back to the comment I had, you know, that I made earlier about the guy, you know, the guy who said, I've been 40 years in mining and I don't need to be taught anything. Number one is open, be, be open-minded. Uh, be open-minded, look for best practice, look, for, look at other sectors and be open-minded. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, that sort of approach uh, from outside will demonstrate that, you know, or from other companies within the industry, share and share and share. Um, and then it's about, it's about, as I said earlier, that the testing of plans, the insurance of, the, you know, investing in leadership, investing in people and empowering people uh, and, 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 not, and, and ensuring that the margins are not, are not so tight that when the crisis comes, as it inevitably will do, uh, you've got it covered and you've got something left in reserve. I think it's that fundamental principle of keeping something in reserve for the inevitable when it strikes. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, move on to the next question, and this is uh, to Ian. Um, investors are increasingly seeking assurance that ESG risks um, are understood um, and managed. How can they best gain um, that assurance? Um, thank you, Rob. Richard just touched on it. Um, it has to be independent to start with. Um, companies can't go on marking their own homework. Uh, I'm not saying they're doing a bad job, but if you want to demonstrate to an investor or a regulator or a license holder, that you really are doing what you say, independent assurance is, is much more powerful. And I see ICMM have caught on to that, uh, and they're putting together a regime around their new standards, which is quite right. I think also, we've got to move away from purely desk-based assurance, purely data-driven assurance. It, absolutely, it's important, 
benchmarking, collection of data, environmental standards, what have you. Of course, it's important. But you've got to have on-the-ground assurance as well. Uh, it takes expert, experienced people to, to understand whether a community really is supportive or not, despite what some survey might say or not. It takes an expert to look at a tailings dam or a leach pad to see if it's properly maintained, because it's not just the satellite imagery, what have you, it's how people uh, are maintaining it, how the staff are, whether they're up to their job. So that sort of intuition is really important. So, and I, and I think it's going to move away from a sort of annual spot check regime, which is a sort of current approach. You put something in the, in the, in the annual report and then you, 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 know, you leave it on the shelf. It's got to be continuous engagement with third party stakeholders, including NGOs, um, local communities, community leaders, political leaders, the other opinion formers. So much broader and much more continual than I think has been the, 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 the way most people have gone about it up to now. Yeah, um, and the same uh, question to you, Richard. I don't think I've got anything. I don't think I can add anything to what Ian yep. has said. So, really, to, to circle back to a point you made earlier about questioning whether governments will loosen off regulations, which implies that, and I and exactly you know, it, because of the imperative of of rebuilding economies, are there going to be any 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 less rigorous? Uh, they might be, but it also brings us back to what Ian said about those companies that are responsible and demonstrate that they're in tune with the, you know, the, the expectations of millennials, you know, the, the, the generation that follows who have a very different attitude to, um, uh, to, 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 to business and the commercial world uh, are much more in tune with with the environment and expe have expectations of the environment and expectations about how people are looked after will will build success and will build prosperity because in a sense it's that sharing of prosperity which is the best way to manage risk so hence i think the imperative coming back again and again to to esg and esg plus yeah um, and I want to slowly wrap this up now. So I've got one more question, which I want to ask you, Richard, first of all. Um, there's a great deal of focus on the security uh, situation that uh, um, Sahel miners are facing at the moment. Um, drawing obviously on your military experience, what advice would you give um, companies that are operating there? Well, we touched on the Sahel earlier, and it's obviously right to finish with one of the, the, the rising jihadist threat in the Sahel, which is in danger of... <laughs> Again, one doesn't want to overstate risks in a sort of too much apocalypse now stuff. But there is serious potential for this to get out of hand um, and to destabilize. And we touched on Burkina Faso, the impact that of the rising tide of violence has had in Burkina Faso, um, the, the massacre of semaphone miners last, uh, last November, the fact that Burkina Faso, now all parts of Burkina Faso, are now designated red under the, the UK Foreign Office's um, threat warning system. Um, but it's going to be wider than Burkina Faso and the impact on relatively, you know, the further afield uh, in other West, West African countries, uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, quite possibly as well. Um, and what we see, I think, are a number of companies with, who bought assets have established assets in countries like Burkina Faso. Arguably, Mali's been in a bit of a state for some time now. But they're fixed. They're there. 
they can't change it. They probably can't, you know, if, if they're not going to find a buyer for a, for, a, for a site very quickly. And anyway, do they want to? Because particularly for gold miners, the one thing that's going to be, you know, in demand in this in this in this uh, economic uh, downturn that we're, we're, we're collapse that we're on the face of, on the edge of is, is gold, and the gold price is, is is a good example of that. So what? So they need to start recognizing the world they live in, which means recognizing that they're they're living and operating in a uh, a red zone, in a counterinsurgency, a vicious, nasty, difficult, dangerous counterinsurgency, which means that security is absolutely paramount. And when they think about security, it's not guns, gates, and guards we're talking about. It's recognizing that the best way to achieve security is to, uh, is to surround yourself with communities and with villages who are on your side. It's as simple as that. It's continuing to build and maintain hearts and minds because your people, the people you're operating amongst, are your best protection because it's through them that you'll pick up the vibes, you'll learn about what's going on, um, and you'll establish, you know, ground zero in terms of truth. And they will be your greatest supporters because if they feel they've got something, they've, they've got something to gain from having you there in terms of jobs, prosperity, etc., they'll support you. So that's number one, understand security from that perspective. The other thing I would highlight is the importance of cooperation and coordination of effort. If, now is the time that mining companies have really got to go and talk, have got to talk to each other and concentrate effort to build up intelligence capabilities, uh, to build, to provide support uh, for capacity building in the security forces, armed forces of the countries they're operating in. Uh, in. Uh, not only to build security, to, to, to capacity build security forces, but also to find ways of contributing to broader stability in those countries through education, through health, through, uh, and this is not just about the private sector, but it's also governmental, governmentally as well. So I would urge, for example, Canadian companies operating in, in, the, in, 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 in the Sahel to be talking to the Canadian government about what they can do to build capacity. Uh, and other Western countries as well should be doing much, much more to build capacity in those countries. Because if they don't, what we'll see, going back to the comments earlier about the economic impact of the virus, the impact of climate change, the potential for famine, add to that insecurity, war, collapse of relatively previously stable governments. And this is going to impact, this will be like, this is, this is going to create another generation, another wave of mass migration to the north to uh, uh, of, of, of illegal immigrants trying to cross over the Mediterranean, getting drowned on the way, et cetera, et cetera, and all that human tragedy, as well as the economic destabilization of, of Europe at a time when actually it needs as much stability as possible. So this is everyone's problem, and it's going to impact on everyone's country. It's not a problem in a faraway country uh, of which we know little and care even less, to paraphrase Mr. Chamberlain. Yeah. Uh, and same question to you, Ian. Have you got, if you've got anything else to add? Well, I think Richard just nailed it. I mean, uh, anything I would add is that most mining companies in, in the Sahel have been there for a while. Their capability in this area, particularly their security folk, is, is okay in a benign environment, but this is changing rapidly. Um, and they're going to need skills and expertise they don't traditionally have, because they haven't needed it. Not, they haven't done anything wrong. They just find themselves in a very different situation. Um, and as you know, we work with companies in the area. And there's bags of information around, but what they haven't got is the capability to turn it into what we call intelligence. So 
collate it, put it on the map, assess it. What are the patterns? What are the scenarios that tells me? What do I need to be thinking about? About my camp, my office in the capital, my supply routes, my people, where are they coming in from? Uh, that's the sort of stuff that's bread and butter to, 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 the, to the military who operate in these environments, but it's new to mining companies. So I think they need to be careful. They need to think carefully about what they, they need for that world. And then the second thing is it can't be done in a silo. It, uh, yeah. I can't, it's not just a security problem. It's a hearts and minds problem. So the social performance, the sustainability teams are key to this. And they've got to work in lockstep with the security guys. Sometimes they do. But sometimes they don't. They, they're different sort of people. They speak a different language. Well, they've got to be talking the same language because we're all in this together. Yep, certainly. Okay, Mitch and e, really appreciate your time uh, um, in discussing, uh, obviously, risk management, especially during these, obviously, unprecedented times. Um, if our audience wants to sort of reach out to you and have any questions that they may have concerns with, with their own operation or own company, how can they go about uh, reaching out to you? Um, look on our website, please, um, and we'd be delighted. Uh, we've got an info at address on the website. Uh, drop us a line. Uh, I'm more than happy to explore any of these things further. Yeah, and ha have you got a, a particular email address or uh, and your website so listeners can uh, um, contact you? www.strategiaworldwide.com. And as Ian said, you'll find on that the info at address in email address yeah. or, or email, uh, email Ian or me, ian.picard at strategyworldwide.com or richard.sheriff at the same address. Yeah. And are you on any social media platforms at all? LinkedIn, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Don't do Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, well, I'll put all those in the show notes as well so uh, people can uh, reach out to you. Really appreciate your time, guys. And, um, I hope, uh, hope you stay safe um, and obviously risk is really important, especially now and more so now to, to mining companies and also obviously uh, people within the mining industry who are working in obviously the certain areas, for instance, in Africa um, and obviously during these unprecedented times and we don't know when we're actually going to come out of this and how we're going to come out of this. So really appreciate your time giving your, your opinions and your advice. Um, so until next time, Happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.